Hi, I'm Dr. Barbara Byers. Welcome back to my podcast. And today I'm going to talk about forgiveness. And I'm going to do this in two parts, the freedom of forgiveness. You know, we all love the word forgiveness when we need to be forgiven. But when we need to give forgiveness, it's not such an easy word after all, because it really costs us something. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive another. And Sue Monk Kidd in her, in her book, The Secret Life of Bees, wrote, if God said in plain language, I'm going to give you a choice, forgive or die. A lot of people would go ahead and order their coffin. We laugh at that, but I have had people tell me, no, I will not forgive. I refuse to forgive. So let's start by looking at the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. <clears throat> at this point, he was a teenager. He was about 17 years old, highly favored by his father who had given him a, uh, a tunic of many colors. Then he had a dream that he shouldn't have told his brothers about, but he did, where his brothers bowed down to him. And so they were very jealous and jealousy is murderous. So they were out in the field with him and decided, well, we're just going to kill him. And um, instead they threw him in a pit and were eating while, while he's in the pit, they're eating their dinner, and they notice that a, a caravan of slaves is passing by on the way to Egypt. So they decided they would just pull him out of that pit and sell him, get some money for him, and then uh, put animal blood on the tunic and took it back to their father and said, oh, look, he's dead. He's been torn up by a wild animal. So... Once he got to Egypt, then an Egyptian officer who was in uh, Pharaoh's command bought him, a man named Potiphar. And it's here we see Joseph's excellence of character. He rose to the very top. Potiphar trusted him with everything, and he governed his whole house and managed it well. But the one uh, fly in the ointment was that Potiphar's wife kept trying to entice him and so finally she lied about Joseph and Potiphar was angry, of course, and had him arrested. <clears throat> we see his excellence again because he has such favor with the jailer. Uh, the jailer puts him in charge of the whole jail and he administrates all of that. And those jails in that day weren't uh, like we have in our day. So he committed all the prisoners to Joseph's care. And finally... He got out of jail because he had interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had that no one else could interpret. God gave him the interpretation. And yet for a third time, the same thing happens <clears throat> in his excellence. He's raised up, he's favored, and now he is set as prime minister over the whole land. He's given a signet ring, he's given a necklace, and he's given a wife by Pharaoh. So... 13 years, no, so now he's 30, and 13 years of his life have been cruelly stolen from him. And if ever a man had a right to feel like a victim, had a right to be bitter, it was Joseph. But his destiny and the destiny of the whole nation depended on his choice, on his character. Would he forgive? 
And really even more at a deeper level than that, did he trust God enough that the Lord was in it that he would forgive and make that choice? So we're going to come back to Joseph later at the end of this. So it really matters that we're sinned against. It's of no small consequence when, when we're wounded and sometimes grievously offended. And we do need to tell the truth about that and go to the other person if, if it's possible and if it's safe. But regardless of what they do, we are to forgive. Uh, and we're going to, like Joseph, we're going to have to deal with forgiveness if we're ever going to fulfill our destiny in the Lord. And our destiny in the Lord has a great deal to do with other people's destiny in the Lord. And, um, and one reason for that is because bitterness can really cause us to miss the grace of God and fulfill our destiny. Hebrews 12, 5 talks about that. Don't let a seed of bitterness drop into the soil of your heart. Don't, don't let it, don't, don't let it take root there. Don't let it grow up and mature. And then the branches have this poisonous fruit that poisons people around. We need to catch it before it goes in and takes root in us. So the Hebrew definition of forgiveness, according to Young's Concordance, is to cover, to lift up, to lift away, to send away, to let go, to loose away, and to be gracious to. So there's an element in there of not just, you know, getting rid of it, but also sending out something which is of grace and blessing. And we forget that part a lot of times in forgiveness. So forgiveness means to give up revenge, to relinquish our right to make the other pay, to demote the other person, to hurt them like they've hurt us. And the second part, as I said, to choose to benefit the other person and even acknowledge the good in them and bless them. So forgiveness is uh, includes emotion, but it's not primarily emotion. It's just a decision to delete an offense, and it's a grace-filled decision. You let go of this need for revenge. You release negative thoughts of bitterness and resentment. And what helps me to think about it is, you know, if, if someone has stolen from me, if they've harmed me, I'm not just releasing them out into the atmosphere somewhere. I'm actually releasing them to the Lord, the one who knows how to make wrong things right and be gracious to me. So Robert Enright is a Catholic psychologist and he is a very famous researcher in the area of forgiveness. And he defined it as to willingly abandon resentment and to endeavor to respond based on the moral principle of love. So there's that and again. It's not just relief, leasing, it's also blessing. So every hurt registers, registers in our heart, it does. And it demands a response from us. And retaliation is often our first response. It's a very reflexive response. It's painful to forgive. It feels unjust. You know, so much has been taken and now I'm the one that has that has to give forgiveness. Um, so the one, someone told me this back when I was in my 20s, the stronger forgives the weaker. 
takes courage to forgive. And the stronger forgives the weaker, the weaker who gave the offense. Now, I'm not saying the morally superior one forgives the inferior one. No, no. But this, it takes strength to forgive, and we can call on the Lord and ask for that. R.T. Kendall has written a book called Total Forgiveness. And he says, to let revenge go is painful because we want justice. But we cross over into a supernatural realm when we acknowledge the wrong done and still desire God's blessing on their life. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness really embodies the foolishness of the cross, doesn't it? Jesus gave everything. He laid down his life and forgave us at a great cost to himself. And we have to, in like manner, give up our automatic and natural animosity toward another who hurt us. Even if it is, you know, a reflexive sort of retaliation on our part as our first thought and emotion, we can forgive. And forgiveness really is innovative because it's, it's grace-filled. Guardini in the Lord said, it's not mere choice, it's incarnate choice. So the reality of Christ living and abiding in me, that's the incarnation. And that's the central message of Christianity. And so out of that incarnation, out of Christ living in me, I'm enabled to forgive. So many times in the counseling room, I've sat with clients who come with literally years of resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness. And when they're invited to consider relinquishing that resentment, whew, often that's right where the battle begins. For so long, they have empowered darkness. And now there is a choice to forgive. And so on the one hand, we can be, you know, tormented with this need for justice and want justice for ourselves, which is not a bad thing. But also on the other hand, with the need to forgive. And, um, and when they enter that battle, I just try to appoint them to the indwelling Christ. He is in you, he enables you to forgive. So I wanna give an example of this. And this is written uh, by Leanne Payne and where she's describing her experience of wrestling with a, a terrible done to her, terrible wrong done to her. She said, <clears throat> there were terrible moments in that interminable afternoon when I wondered what I would do if God failed to help me, if I would simply have to cry out like this for the rest of my life. Then came a moment when instantly my pleading was interrupted by an amazing awareness of Christ in me. Oh. And from that center where he and I were mysteriously one, forgiveness was extended to my enemy. It was if Christ in, as if Christ in and through me forgave the person. Who can explain such a thing? Yet I too forgave. And that's what enables us to forgive. All right, how do we know if we're still holding on to unforgiveness? Well, am I still seeking revenge? First uh, Corinthians 13, five says, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, in, uh, a debt. Do I still see them as the enemy? 
which of course means if they're the enemy, I have to be very self-protective and close my heart to them. But we have to learn to be a little more objective. There's good in everyone and um, separate the person from their sin. Second question is, am I still bitter? Am I still grinding under that offense when I think about it? So at first, our anger is a protest against evil, and we do need to protest the evil done to us. There's a time for protest. It's our refusal to collaborate with evil, but we can't retain that and increase it and feed it because then it turns into bitterness for us, contempt toward them, and then we want to degrade them, and it's like an acid in our soul. It also creates an invisible barrier with God and inhibits his blessings. That's enough motivation for me sometimes. Um, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, along with all malice, malice is that hostile desire to cause pain, be put away from you. Be kind toward another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as uh, God in Christ has forgiven you. That's a grace of heaven. Uh, the third thing is, when we don't forgive, we have an, uh, an element of ingratitude and pride and a lack of humility because it takes humility to forgive. We're not morally superior. We are told to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. And when we show mercy, we're withholding justice from someone else that we could insist on. But we know if we give mercy, we'll be shown mercy. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, The merciful man does good for his own soul. Hmm. We're not oblivious to their offense. We don't excuse it. We don't condone it. We don't whitewash it. We don't cover it up. We don't pretend it didn't happen. We're not in denial. We acknowledge what's done, but we still refuse to make them pay. So relational reconciliation isn't always possible because they need to have remorse and they need to work to rebuild the trust and, and they don't always do that. And it's not always a good idea. So we don't stay in the presence of someone who's evil or harmful, but we can still give unilateral forgiveness. Uh, and you know, once I forgive, I shouldn't feel the slightest bit of guilt or shame for not wanting a complete restoration of that relationship if they haven't rebuilt the trust. I don't reconcile, but I still um, pray for them, I still forgive them, and I still bless them. And in every way I can, try to extend that blessing. So I release them to the Lord and I bless them with mercy. So that's the end of part one. And when we go into part two, I'm going to emphasize a little more about the victim idea of needing to forgive. All right. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening.